Hi everyone, my name is Alex and I'm a first year student studying engineering and finance. Today I have the privilege of reading out the Bible passage from Romans 6, so please listen up and feel free to follow along on the little handouts that were given out by the door. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead for the glory of God the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lived, he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God and Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourselves to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourselves to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know But when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God, that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you are slaves to sin, you are free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You like the t-shirt? <laughs> you two can have one. Wouldn't it be cool if a hundred of us were wearing these around uni for the next two weeks or so? And every person walking on campus would see one there and one there and one in their class and wonder what, what's that about? Wouldn't that be cool? Get yours. Okay, Romans chapter 6, there's an outline um, uh, inside the newsletter. You might find that helpful to have open with the passage. At the heart of Christianity is God saying to evil people like you and me, I forgive you freely and completely. I treat you like you've never sinned, you've never done any evil forever. It's an amazing thing that God would do that. He sent his son to die for us, so that could be a reality for you and me. And it sounds terrific, but for many people, there's a dark side to that possible reality. It would be sort of like the WA government suddenly deciding that speeding fines are out. 
no matter how many you've got sitting in your drawer waiting to be paid, they're all cancelled. No matter how many you might rack up in the future, they'll never be issued. How do you reckon you'd drive? Would you speed? Do you reckon? Would the temptation come? Like, I can do it. It doesn't matter. 60? That's 100. (laughs) And I suspect you wouldn't be the only one. Let's be bad. If God forgives us freely, then let's just do it. And if you're a Christian, I'm sure you've felt that logic even in your own mind and heart. You're tempted to sin and suddenly you think, it's okay, God will forgive. What's the big deal? I know it's wrong, but it doesn't matter. Just go ahead. And last week we read that that's actually almost the right logical conclusion to draw from what Paul says. The end of chapter 5 he says, Where sin increased, grace super increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, grace might reign through righteousness to bring life. Where sin increases, the more you sin, the more you experience the grace of God. You do really bad stuff? then there's more forgiveness for you. And as there's more forgiveness, so you're drawn to appreciate and love God even more. And God is honoured more. It's a win-win, isn't it? It's a win for God. It's a win for us if we sin more. So let's be bad. But it doesn't feel quite right, does it? But it does seem the logical inference from what Paul has said in chapter 5. For Muslims, this is one of the greatest problems and difficulties with Christianity. If God freely forgives, it'll lead to more sin. Muslims agree that we need forgiveness from God, but their answer is you've got to earn it. You've got to do enough to earn God's forgiveness, and then forgiveness is okay. But if you just give it freely, then people will just sin more. And so it seems like teaching people that they're justified, that they're forgiven by God freely, will lead to moral degeneracy. It's dangerous teaching. It must be wrong. Well, as we read chapter 6, we see that Paul anticipates that exact response. Verse 1, what should we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? It sounds like Paul's exactly in your headspace. Or verse 15, shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? He understands the objection. How's he going to respond to it? To this idea that grace will lead to let's be bad. Will he say, oh, well, actually, grace isn't quite that free. Uh, uh, you need to read the subscript. You've misunderstood it. You do need to earn it by some things that you do. Or will he say, yeah, right, just go for it. Let's be bad together. Well, his response in verse 2 is by no means. Or you could say, no way. Again, in verse 15, no way. You've drawn the wrong response. What he wants to argue and convince us of is that God's grace actually leads to righteousness, not sin and evil. And it's all to do with Jesus. In verses 2 to 14, he gives us one angle on it. Verses 15 to 23, another angle on the same reality. Let's start with 2 to 14. He says, you died to sin. See that in verse 2? We are those who've died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? I don't know whether you follow the logic, but... The first difficulty is, he says that you died to sin. You might be sitting there thinking, I don't remember that. When did I die? I've only experienced life so far. What do you mean I died? Well, Paul wants to say, you died to sin when you died with Christ. So verse 5, he explains it. 
if we've been united with him, with Christ, in a death like his, we'll certainly also be united with him in a resurrection. Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him, so the body of death ruled by sin might be done away with. Again and again he says, 2,000 years ago when Jesus was crucified outside Jerusalem, I died. You died. Now that's even harder to get your head around, isn't it? You weren't even alive then. You might think I was, but I wasn't. (laughs) There's two crucial things, though, about Christ's death that underlie what he's saying, his assertion that you died with Christ. The first one you pick up in a number of places, but say verse 10. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. He died to sin. Now, he doesn't mean that Christ used to sin and then when he died, he stopped sinning. What he means is he died to eradicate sin. He died to reverse the effects of sin. He died to deal with sin and evil once for all by bearing its punishment, by taking the condemnation and wrath that our sin deserves. He died to sin. That is, he didn't die to assist sin, he died to undo sin. The second thing is that when Christ died, he died my death. Now, that again is a little hard to get your head around. Let me try and explain it this way. Here I was living life my way. I did what I wanted to do within the limits imposed by parents and police and politicians, but I did what I wanted to do and it felt good. Whatever felt good, whatever held out the promise of feeling good, I did it. If I felt cheesed off by somebody else's behaviour, I'd lose it or slag off at them or just scratch their car or something. If I felt insecure, I'd... Well, I'd pick faults in other people to bolster my own sense of importance or I'd compete like crazy so I could look down on them. See, I I lived as if it was my life to do with as I pleased, which is the very definition of sin. And what was God's response to you and to me as we did that? Well, God didn't say, Tim, just carry on, why don't you? I I don't mind what you're doing. I'll just forgive you. It doesn't really matter. Feel free to, to, to continue. Now, instead, he said, Tim, I abhor your behaviour. That's wicked. Its effects on others are so bad, I will do something. You deserve to die. And he condemned me to death. How do I know? Because Jesus died. My sentence was carried out on a cross outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. See, God didn't go all soft and say, ah, boys will be boys, I'll I'll let you off. Do 20 push-ups and everything's okay. No, Christ died my death as my representative. I died with Christ. My life I was living was condemned and executed when Jesus died. See, forgiveness isn't just a whim on God's part. It cost him the life of his son. Christ died for sin. Christ died to sin once and for all. And I died with him. That life of self-indulgence and selfishness was executed when Christ was executed. But Paul has a suspicion that they still haven't quite got it. You died to sin, not that I remember. And so in verse 3, he reminds them. He says, yes, you do. You remember. Of course, you remember your baptism. Don't you know that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Jesus was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might live a new life. Baptism, you know what happens in baptism, don't you, at least of adults? What happens? A person is pushed down under the water and then they're pulled back up out of the water. They go down, which is a symbol of conversion, of a whole change of life, of a change of direction. The end of the old life 
and the beginning of a new life. Now, that was true of baptisms in the ancient world, whatever the religion was, but for Christians there was more significance, richer significance. Because in baptism, it's a, it's a symbol of trusting Jesus and his death and resurrection. He died and came back to life again. And so I say, his death was mine. I die and I come back up again to live a new life. The life I was living, it died. It went under the water. It got drowned. He actually calls uh, baptism here a burial. Your life got buried because it was dead. Now, baptism is just an outward picture of what is meant to be an inward reality, of trusting Jesus' death, of embracing his sacrifice for me, of saying, when Jesus died, I died. When Jesus was condemned under the, the judgment of God, I was condemned. It was my life that died. My old life of sin and evil, it was crucified with Jesus. So I'm not going to revert to that old life anymore. That was executed, that died. To to live that life is as stupid as living for Ned Kelly or Bonnie and Clyde, because it died. Plus, we were raised with Christ. If you trusted in Jesus, if I joined myself to him, his death is my death and his destiny becomes my destiny. And what happened to Jesus? Well, verse 8... If we die with Christ, we believe we'll also live with him. We know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. He has mastery over death. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Jesus was raised to an indestructible life, victorious over death and sin. And that means we will be too. When? Well, he talks about it as if it's a future thing. It's our sure destiny. One day, physically, we'll be resurrected just like Jesus and sin and death and all its effects will be eradicated from our lives completely. But if that's our destiny, we start living that new life now. You don't wait till you die. You don't have to wait till Jesus comes back. We begin it now, in the present. Just another way of saying it is we've been freed from the tyranny of sin and death. See, we were enslaved by sin. We were under its rule. I obeyed sin, sometimes unwillingly, actually always willingly, even when I didn't want to do it. I still decided to do it. And so it condemned me and I couldn't escape. But now I've been set free. But here's the cool bit, how it happens. So imagine that you've, I don't know, you've got yourself into an incredible debt that you can never pay, even if you live to be 150. Or imagine you've been sentenced to life imprisonment, locked up in the cell, the key thrown away. Imagine that situation. How can you escape? Well, I'm sure you're imaginative enough to think of some ways to do it. You could try and dig a tunnel out of the cell, I guess. But guess what? Even if you succeed, what's going to happen to you? You'll probably get found again, thrown back in the cell. Now, there's a way of getting out of escaping that you might not have thought of. Know what it is? Die. You thought of that? If you die... Will they come to collect the debt? No. Are you still locked up in the prison cell? No. You've been freed completely. Now, it seems a bizarre way to do it, just on a a sort of a human level, isn't it? But that's what he's saying. When you died with Christ, you were liberated from the power of sin and death. And completely liberated, not just liberated for a little while while you make your little escape and then you get caught again, liberated permanently from the rule of sin. 
Now, it only works if (laughs) there's some sort of life after you die, isn't there? Which there is in the case of us. We're liberated from the tyranny of sin. And so Paul says in verse 11, recognise that reality. Count yourselves as dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Think about yourselves not as somebody who got 95 for the ATAR or somebody who's studying law, but as somebody who died to sin, as liberated from its tyranny. Because by Jesus' death, you were transferred from under Adam and sin and death to being under Christ. And God's grace is not like the government just cancelling all the speeding fines and leading everyone to speed even more. It was achieved by something very costly, the death of Jesus. Very personal. He died my death. And that's the game changer. Because the purpose of Jesus' death was to reverse the effects of sin. He's against sin. Totally and utterly. So much so, he dies. And I'm connected to that. I died to sin. My old self of living for me was crucified and buried. So how can I live that old life now? He's not saying it's impossible. He's just saying it's inconceivable. It's dumb. It's incongruous. It it doesn't make sense. Imagine you're swimming down at Cottesloe Beach one day in in a huge storm. You think, ah, I can swim. I'm pretty good. You go out for a swim. The the, the waves are actually big at Cottesloe Beach. And and you get into trouble. And you realise you're going to drown. And you flap around a bit. You try and grab attention. You yell for all you're worth. And finally, one of the lifesavers sees you. Uh, And they, they go and they grab the rubber dinghy, whatever it is, start the motor zoom out, risking their own lives to get out to you and they get to you and they pull you into the boat and they start to take you back to shore. Now what are you going to do while you're on the way back to shore? Will you jump back in the water? Well you can, can't you? It's not impossible. It's just incongruous. It just doesn't make sense. If you went to do it, I presume the lifesaver would say, what on earth was I doing rescuing you if you just want to jump back in? No, you stay in the boat, don't you? If you've been rescued from sin, why would you jump back into it? And so he says, choose your behaviour, verse 12. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Don't offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. In verse 15, we have the same sort of question in a different guise. Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? If we're not under law, if I haven't got the law there threatening me that if I go wrong, if I transgress, something bad will happen to me. If it doesn't restrict me, then won't I just sin more if I'm under grace? And Paul's answer again is no way because you are a slave to God. Verse 16, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one you obey, whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness? Two options, a slave to sin or a slave to God, to obey him. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, hold on, I've got a third option. (laughs) I want to put a third option in. I, I, I don't want to be a slave to sin. I don't want to be a slave to God. I just want to do my own thing. You ever thought that? Well, guess what? When you do your own thing, when you follow your heart, what comes out of your heart? Uh, If you're not quite sure what comes out of yours, just look at people around you. What comes out of their heart when they follow their heart? It's just sin, isn't it? There's jealousy and strife and and, uh, impatience. 
uh, and attention-seeking and deceiving and slander and backbiting and divisiveness. And that's what comes out when we do our own thing. It is to be a slave to sin. We all serve someone. And so he puts before us the choice of bosses. You can choose sin as your boss. Sin's a tyrant. It had you locked up in his castle, doing his bidding, captive body and soul. But you died. Your corpse got carried out of the castle. You've been raised to a new life with a new boss, God, in which righteousness is now the the norm, the righteousness you couldn't do before. And so Paul says to us, in the moment, in almost every moment of life, you've got to choose which boss you're going to obey, which boss you're going to serve. Now, whenever you're thinking about a job and a boss, there's, there's two questions to ask, I think. Two questions are, what sort of work am I supposed to do and how much will they pay me? Are they your two questions? If you're applying for a job, what's the work? How much do they pay me? Well, that, that's what Paul goes on to say. Sin, what's the type of work if sin is your boss? Well, verse 19, he talks about offering yourselves as slaves to impurity and ever-increasing wickedness. Do you remember what it was like? Some of you don't. I was chatting to a guy over the weekend who just became a Christian about a month ago. And I said, why did you do it? And he said, well, I, I started to see that the life I was living, I hated. I said, like what? And he said, well, I was, I was doing drugs, but it was mainly the way I treated people. It was just really bad. And I said, well, why did you do it? And he said, well, I guess I did it because I wanted to, but I didn't want to. But I did because I did want to. Well, that, that's sort of slavery, isn't it? But he recognised that the life he had been living under sin was just yuck. He said, I I wanted to become a Christian. I wanted to live a different life. The other type of work is the work God gives. In verse 19 again, offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness that leads to holiness, honesty and humility, patience and peace, compassion and warmth. Which do you want to be, says Paul? Well, think about the wages. The wages of sin is death. It's destructive now. It's destruction forever. God is not wages. Verse 23, the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That leads to holiness, to a purity that is clean and refreshing. So which boss, he says, do you want to serve? And so in verse 19b, the end of it, he says, So now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. On the 1st of January, 1863, that's a while ago, isn't it? 1863, US President Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. And with a stroke of his pen, three million slaves, almost all uh, Negro Americans, uh, became free, legally free. There's a story of one of those three million, a slave. He was given his piece of paper. He walked off that terrible, uh, brutal conditions of the cotton farm he was enslaved on to start a new life as a free person. The next week, as he walked down the main street of the town he now lived in, he saw his former owner walking towards him. And his owner recognised him and said, Hey, boy, fetch my supplies, put them in the buggy. And for a moment, he almost did it. And then he stopped and he said, I'm not a slave anymore. I'm a free person. He pulled his piece of paper out of his pocket and said, I am free. And he politely told his old boss to bugger off. 
which is what he should have done. Absolutely right, isn't it? It's not impossible that he goes and obeys his boss again. It's just inconceivable. You've trusted Jesus, then you've died to sin. Are you going to obey your former tyrannical boss? It's not impossible. It's just inconceivable, isn't it? Will you choose to sin? Just because there's no threat hanging over your head saying, don't do this or else. Are you going to sin? Are you going to do that stuff you used to do? This afternoon, are you going to offer yourself to sin to do its bidding? Or to God to do his? Do you see the logic? Do you feel the power of it? Because that's what Paul is convincing us of. Does unlimited grace lead to sin? No, it leads to goodness and righteousness. It's crucial we see that it's grace all the way. Paul doesn't retreat into, oh, sorry, you misunderstood me. There's a bit of fine print I didn't tell you about. You've actually got to earn your forgiveness. It's not as free as I, as I made it out. He doesn't introduce some new scare tactics. If you sin too much, grace will finally run out. God is a God of second chances, yes, but not third chances or fourth chances. No, for Paul, it's grace all the way. And contrary to what you might expect, he sees that grace produces righteousness, not immorality, not evil. This chapter just keeps affirming grace, not cheap grace. There's a sort of cheap grace that says, well, uh, uh, God will forgive. It's just his job, as Heinrich Heine was famous for saying. That's not cheap grace like that. It's expensive grace. Christ died. He gave his life for this grace, for our forgiveness. As I look around the world, and I may be myopic and not see things clearly, but it seems to me that where grace is compromised, legalism always dominates. In one way or another, you have to win and earn the forgiveness of God. You get into that treadmill of doing duty because you've just got to do it. That's true in Islam. I think from what I've seen, it's very true in some Christian denominations like Catholicism. On the other hand, where grace is cheap, that is, it, hasn't won, it wasn't won by Jesus, it's just God's job, where the idea that Christ died to pay the penalty for my sin is rejected as cosmic child abuse or something like that, immorality and self-indulgence tend to come in in waves. But where grace is strong, where it's real, where we know the costly nature of the forgiveness that God offers us and the fullness of that forgiveness, where Christ's death is our joy, glad righteousness follows. Not perfection, but glad righteousness. What will produce real righteousness? Not half grace, not compromise grace, where God does his bit and we have to fill in the rest, a sort of hobbled, crippled grace. No, it's when full grace, when we see what grace has really done, that Christ died my death and so my old life died. I've been liberated. And so the key is living up to what you are because of Jesus, not trying hard to become what you aren't. How do we live then? Well, Maybe a way to, to think about this is when there's an opportunity to sin, and they come pretty regularly, don't they? Like every minute or every hour or something, and this little voice says to you, oh, Tim, it doesn't matter. God will forgive you. What are you going to do? How will you respond to that? Let me tell you how not to respond. Don't reintroduce law and threat. Don't say to yourself, no, he won't. If I do it, I'm doomed. 
But instead, remember who you are. You died to sin. That old life under sin, immersed in sin and evil, is dead and buried. You've escaped its tyranny. So do you really want to return to that sin again? To jump back into the filth again? Do you? I, I know you're pulled in both directions. You sort of do and you sort of don't if you're anything like me. But when it all boils down, no, I don't. Because I've already been to the funeral of that life. It's dead and buried. And verse 13 offers a more positive way of doing it as well. Offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to his as instruments, more literally as weapons of righteousness. Offer your hands and your eyes and your imagination and your capacities and your ambitions to God. See, your hands, they can do evil, can't they? Very easy. And they can do good. Which will you use them for? Your eyes. They can see opportunities to love and serve, to please God, or to do the opposite. Which will you do? Your imagination. You're creative, aren't you? You can think of all sorts of things to do. Which will you use your imagination for? To serve sin or to serve God? In the light of God's grace. Surely it's only to serve God. That's the only sensible option, isn't it?